When you came in, you were handed a workbook, Bible study kind of thing on Esther. We're starting a new sermon series on the Old Testament book of Esther. We did this with Daniel last semester. We did it with Ephesians back in the spring. The idea is for you to spend some preparation throughout the week, preparing for the section we're going to preach on the following Sunday, and we're kind of doing a Bible study that way together as a church. That's the, that's the hope. But the book of Esther is interesting because if you think about it, there's only two books in the entire, what we call the Old Testament, Hebrew Scriptures, only two books that are about the people of God that are not at all talking about being in Jerusalem or Judea or Jerusalem or uh, Israel. They're out in a pagan kingdom in the Persian Empire or the Babylonian Empire. They're exiles. And so we saw that with Daniel when Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, came and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, took exiles back to Babylon. And these exiles were kind of slaves and servants, but you know, not... Sometimes they had pretty decent jobs, like you know, Daniel had a job where he was in charge of a lot of, a lot of things, in charge of a province kind of thing, uh, and others just sort of settled down in the Babylonian kingdom. And then later, about, well, 70 years later, uh, Persia arose. Cyrus, this guy who became this first Persian king, king of Persia, Mede, Media, uh, he, w- he was united both the Persian and Mede kingdoms and started taking over the whole area. He became the next big dog in the yard and so conquered Babylon. We get that in the last couple chapters of Daniel. So Daniel's now under Cyrus. And one of the things that Cyrus did uh, is that he, not just with Israel, but lots of other people that were part of people captured by the Babylonians, is he just let them go back to their homeland and in some cases even paid for the rebuilding of their temples and cities and all that kind of stuff. That was kind of the way he wanted to run empire was to build a lot of loyalty by being largesse in his liberality and giving people, you know, in some sense, a loyalty to the king of Persia. And it worked. Uh, Persia was a kingdom that lasted 200 years and it was the biggest global kingdom up until that point in that time. And yet, about 50 years after he let the people go back to Israel, go back to Judea, it turns out that most of them didn't. Most of them liked being in the community they were at and whatever they, wherever they were in the Persian Empire. And that's when we come to the book of Esther. We find two characters. Uh, we have Esther and her cousin Mordecai, and they have just stayed there in Persia. They like it there. They have lives there. Probably didn't know anything else. Probably were born under exile and doesn't, you know, why would you want to go back to a place that you've never been? And last you heard, it was burnt to the ground. So yeah, no, I don't think I'll do that. So they stayed in their lifestyle in Persia. And that's the book of Esther. That's the story of Esther. And kind of the question that I'm sure the Hebrew original readers were asking is, Is that okay? Can you be in God's covenant promises and not be in the promised land? Can you live in God's covenant promises in a secular pagan society and not be in the promised land? Does it work? Is God going to be faithful? And that's one of the questions that's kind of running through the book of Esther, but it's really read, meant to be read as one story. Its message is the entire story. But that story has troubled Christians throughout the centuries really three big areas, others two, but one big way that the book of Esther has troubled Christians is that it never mentions God. Never is God mentioned, talked about, 
Nobody prays to God. There's, there's no sign or miracles from God. There's no mention of God whatsoever. It's almost like a secular story. And then the second thing is, is that the heroes of the story, particularly Esther, are morally problematic at best. Esther is introduced to us in the story as somebody who focuses an entire year on her own physical beauty so that she can end up bopping the king, end up bopping the wealthy, powerful, tall, handsome, pagan king who's not her husband. It's like the first episode of The Bachelor. And that's what Esther is doing in the second chapter, first and second chapters of Esther. That's our hero, so to speak, of the story. And so people have had problems with that being sort of the moral ambiguity of the story's hero. The third thing that's bothered people is, and we'll talk about this when we get there, the third thing that's bothered people is that the happy ending is a mass killing of all kinds of people. Now that's, that's difficult to read and it has offended people for obvious reasons to say the least, and we'll deal with that when we get to those chapters. But the main point of Esther, the main plot, I should say, is this Jewish girl who's born in exile in the Persian Empire, whose parents died, and so she was raised by her cousin who became her guardian. And when she became of age, she ends up going into this beauty contest slash harem and becoming queen of the Persian Empire. And because she becomes queen, she's able to save her people from the plot of total destruction. That's the, that's the plot of the book of Esther. But it starts telling us something that helps us understand more what's going on. The first few verses of Esther, it might sound like it's, you're just sort of reading, you know, that was this year and that year and this king and that king. It's, that that's not what's going on. To those who understand the period, it's giving us a very specific context of what Esther is entering into when she enters the story. So verse one says this, that says, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. Now that was what the Greeks called him, and so that's become kind of his name throughout history, Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. So this is a huge thing. Let's go ahead and show that map, Henry, if you can. Uh, this is from India to Kush at the height of Xerxes' empire. When Esther enters when, when, when Esther starts, uh, enters the story, this is, this is the Persian Empire. It's, it's got all this right here. It's the biggest, like I said, empire so far on the global, you know, that's India over there, northern Africa, down into northern Sudan, and then up here into Europe. Not Greece, we'll explain that in a minute, but all this modern day Turkey and all this Palestine and all that, that's, that's what Xerxes is the king over. And that's, that's what we're being told here. And what's interesting is that we know a lot about Xerxes because uh, the, the, there's a Greek historian, especially one named Herodotus, who was a contemporary of Xerxes, a little younger than Xerxes, and he wrote a history of the Persian-Greek War. And so we have a lot of information about Xerxes that's really insightful and helpful. But the next thing we'll look at here, this next verse says, at that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. So that tells us that it's winter because there were four capitals of the Persian Empire 
and Susa was the place they would go to in the winter because it was the warmest. So he's in Susa at the citadel, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. Now, there's something going on here we'll talk about. Let's look at the next verse. It says, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. So that whole Persian empire we looked at, he's bringing them all in to not just have a banquet, but he's going to bring them in for 180 days. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. Now, he's not bringing them in. They're not all staying there 180 days, I don't think. I think he's bringing them in one by one because he's smoothing them. What's happening here, as it said in the verse before that, in the third year of his reign. When the author of Esther tells us this is the third year of his reign, we know some things. We know that he became king in 486 BC. So this places it in 483 BC. We know that in 483 BC, there was the famous war council where he brought in all the Persian military generals and leaders throughout the entire Persian empire, Egypt, Phoenicia, the whole thing. And he was building a campaign to invade Greece. Now, Herodotus, the member the historian that was a Greek historian, he describes Xerxes as somebody who was the, most, the tallest and most handsome of all the Persian kings, that he was a person with ambition and ruthless, that he was an, a brilliant warrior, and it said, he says that he was a jealous lover, which is interesting because when we enter the story and we know these things about him, he's doing the warrior thing right now, and he's going to try to do what his father couldn't do, and that is take over Greece, Athens, Sparta, all that. And so he's bringing them all in, but the way he worked, Herodotus said the way he worked was that he would show people his wealth and convince you that if you were loyal to him, he would reward you with incredible wealth. So that's what he's doing. He's bringing all these Persian Empire military leaders, Egypt, Phoenicia, all that. He's bringing them in, and he's displaying his vast wealth and the splendor of his glory because that's how he's going to get their allegiance to bring armies to invade Greece. Herodotus says that he had told them at this banquet, at this meeting, at this war council, he said, those of you who bring your army prepared to fight and fight with loyalty, I will reward you with all the best that I can give. And that's why he's showing them his wealth, this opulent wealth and his glory. So the next verse says that when these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people. So this enclosed garden doesn't have a roof. It's not a garden like a little thing, an atrar- you know, a little terrarium or whatever it's called, atrium inside of a building. That's not what this is. This is a huge garden in a courtyard in the citadel. And we know from history, this garden was a huge deal to Xerxes. He was as into gardening as much as he was into war and and conquering people. He loved gardening. And you can think about it this way, that, that, that gardening was kind of the new science of the time. I mean, from it, you got medicines and from it, you got food. And so he was presented as somebody that if you brought him a prized vegetable, he would almost put you in charge of an entire city. That said something about you that you were able to tap into the earth and raise something that would produce a food like this. It was a big deal to him. And so in this book by historian Tom Holland, it's an award-winning book on the history of the Persian War with Greece. It's called Persian Fire. 
He wrote it about almost 20 years ago. But he, he says this, that when he talks about uh, Xerxes' love of plants and gardens, he describes this garden that Esther's describing. He describes this garden this way. He says, his garden was filled with plants of every description, herb gardens and flower beds, pear and apple trees, pines and cypresses, sunk into the soil and perfumed with the sense of exotic blooms. He was so into this garden that this garden was what, one of the things he used to show off the splendor of his glory. And we know he loved it so much, one of his military generals, his advisors, when he was trying to entice him to go to war against Greece and trying to entice Xerxes, one of the ways he did it was he said, you won't believe Europe. Europe is this nursery of the most interesting trees. When you get to Europe, you're going to see trees you've never seen before. And Xerxes goes, really? Well, maybe I might want to conquer that. On his way to conquering Europe, he's taking this vast army, huge army, never before crossing the earth that we know of, is going through that whole area, Palestine, up through modern-day Turkey. And as that huge, vast army is marching to go conquer Greece, the story is told that he sees a tree that was a particularly glorious tree that got his attention. He gets off his horse. He stops the entire march of the entire army, and they all have to watch him admire this tree. And he admires this tree so much that he actually takes one of his guard, pulls him out of the army, and makes him stand guard over that tree, and they all go on. That's how much Xerxes loved plants and loved his garden. So this is part of what he's trying to do to show his glory and his splendor. So the author of Esther is somebody who really knows Xerxes and really knows how, what was happening here in 483 BC. So it goes on to describe it this way. It says, the garden had hangings of white and blue linen. Now, linen was a big deal to the Persians. I think they're the ones who invented it. It was a new thing, and they were really into it as part of their riches, as part of their wealth, and it's white and blue, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to the silver rings on marble pillars. So just imagine this. You have this garden that has all those trees that Tom Holland mentioned in his book, Persian Fire, and there's these huge white pillars made of marble, and these huge white marble pillars throughout the garden have these rings around them that are made of silver, real silver, and on that silver are cords of purple and white cloth. And from that cloth hang these incredibly beautiful blue and white linen banners. That's what the author of Esther is telling us. And, and then what goes on to describe this, that there were couches of gold and silver. And you might think, oh, come on. But there were couches of, couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of all kinds of incre- you know, precious stones and, and so you might be thinking that this is a little exaggeration. The Bible's kind of making up a story. Who has all this stuff, couches of silver and gold? It's interesting if you read Persian Fire, Tom Highland, the historian, is not a Christian. He's an atheist, in fact. And yet he describes Xerxes just this way, that when Xerxes was going up, bringing his army up through modern-day Turkey to go invade Greece, huge army, Every night when he had to spend the night or whenever he stopped at camp, his engineers had to erect a tent 
that Tom Holland says was bigger than most king's palaces. This tent was so unbelievably, ridiculously large that Xerxes would stay in while they camped at night. And he describes the tent this way, Tom Holland in his book, Persian Fire. He says, it was cocooned in rugs and cushions, leather awnings, and, well, here we go, saying the same thing that the author of Esther says, color hangings and a silver-footed couch. There's that well, another couch maybe, but a silver-footed, just like Esther says, where the coverings would have been prepared for him by a specialist bedmaker, a slave trained to, and this is a, quoting an ancient Greek historian talking about it, a, a slave trained to, quote, make linens beautiful and soft, for the Persians were the very first people to have regarded this as an art. So when the author of Esther is telling us all this about the palace in Susa, and all the ways that Xerxes is trying to impress people. It might seem like an exaggeration, but it's exactly what we know of Xerxes. Long story short, he's not successful in invading Greece. It's a big, long battle. It's a long story. You've seen the movie, The 300. It's all part of that. And, 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 and Thermopylae and the Salamis is where the naval fight was. He lost, and he had to go back to Susa. And he went back to Susa, we know, his seventh year of his reign after having lost trying to take over Greece. And in the last, one of the last battles when his army had to flee, they discovered this tent. And this is why we know all the stuff that's in the tent. They discovered, the Greeks discovered this tent. And when they walked into this tent, they're like, what in the world? Who does this on a military campaign? They saw the couch, they saw the linens, they saw all the wealth, and they said, why would a guy who had all this be so hungry to take over our lands? Was he trying to rob us of our poverty? They didn't have anything like this. They didn't have any luxury like this. All these you know, linen pillows and this fluffy life was nothing any Greek warrior or any Greek ruler knew, but it was something true of Persia and something particularly true of Xerxes, but Xerxes goes back the seventh year, as we know from history. Here's what's interesting. It explains a lot of what we see in the book of Esther. What explains it? The fact that he lost the most consequential battle in Persian history up until the time of Alexander the Great. It's the first seven years of his reign as king. He started off so confident in his wealth and his glory and his splendor and he had such mass casualties, mass casualties in his defeat against Greece for lots of reasons. And so he's going back in defeat, embarrassment, shame. So the Xerxes we read in Esther can't sleep at night. The Xerxes we read in Esther has to have somebody read to him all the great things he's done as king in order to help him sleep at night. The Xerxes we read in Esther is somebody trying to find escape in lots and lots of alcohol. The Xerxes we read in Esther is somebody who's trying to find escape in this ridiculous harem beauty contest thing, trying to find escape in women. I was talking to Allie back there before that, and she said, yeah, it sounds like he's trying another kind of conquest since the other one didn't work. I think she's right. And this is the story where Esther comes in because here's the thing. When you read Esther, it says in chapter two, verse 16, here's what it says. In the seventh year of Xerxes' reign, 
Esther was taken into the royal residence. And that's where the story begins. This defeated king, all his wealth, all his glory, all his power, the plans he had, all shot to heck. And he's come back a defeated king. And it makes a lot more sense out of what we read in the story. So let's come back to the, at least a couple of the things that we have a hard time with. One is the moral ambiguity. Now, we're going to talk more about this in next sermon, but just to say this, the moral ambiguity of Esther is one of the best things about the book of Esther. Because, see, here's the deal. It shows you that you can have moral failure and at the same time, God can use you in powerful ways. It shows you that moral failure has always been baked into the Bible's story. It shows you that in spite of moral failure and moral ambiguity, God still uses you to accomplish his redemptive purposes, not just in the bigger story, but also in your life. And here's the thing it also shows you, that just because you see God use you in powerful ways in the lives of others doesn't mean anything about passing a test of where you are with God in your obedience to him. You might have a lot to work on still, and God wants you to deal with that sin and repent of it, and at the same time, you see him work through you in powerful ways. The two aren't always a sign of the other. The other thing it shows is that you might discover someday the moral failures maybe you have already. The moral failures of those who have had a big impact on your faith. They were powerful presence in your life and leading you to Christ and helping you grow as a disciple. And then you discover, well, they were kind of doing some other things on the side. And you want to reject your faith because it seems like the whole thing was a trick, the whole thing was a deception, don't fall for that trick because that has always been baked into the Bible's story from the beginning. These things are always going to happen because they've always been happening. But when you understand that when God uses somebody in your life, it's because he's bringing you into this redemptive story in spite of their moral failures, not obviously because of them. The other thing about the book that God has never mentioned, it's true, and the fact that God is never mentioned in the text of the entire story is the absolute genius of the story. That in itself is the most genius literary device of the entire story because it's giving this whole story of somehow God working in behind the scenes and all these ridiculous coincidences and all these things that happen to bring about the saving of God's people, even though they didn't go back to the land of Judah and they're living in a secular pagan culture that God is bringing redemption in their lives. God is bringing the promises of his covenant into their lives as well. And he's never mentioned because well, on the one hand, you have Daniel, where he's, God's doing miracles, and God's giving visions, and God's doing this and that. Amazing things are happening. That's happening to the faithful people of God living in exile. 
On the other hand, you have Esther. And there's no mention of God because God is absent from the text. And you don't quite know if you're living in his covenant promises because there's no signs, there's no miracles, no, there's nothing happening that gives this obvious God is working here, God is here. It's just God is visibly absent. And that's the genius of the story because the message of the story is God's hidden providence. God's providence is somehow this mysterious working of God where he's governing the decisions and the events and the circumstances in people's lives. And at the same time, people have complete free will and are making their own free choices. Somehow the two are existing at the same time, but we don't see God doing it. It's when God almost seems most absent that he's active the most in our lives, just like in the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, it's the perfect Old Testament, the most realistic Old Testament picture of our lives in a secular culture. Because for most of us, we don't see miracles. For most of us, we don't have some sign from God. We're just trying to make the best decisions we can, and we're trying to live faithful to the promises of God best we can. And there are good days, and there are bad days. And for most of us, we don't see God, and we don't see signs of God. And for most of us, sometimes God's promises seem distant. And sometimes it doesn't seem to be working for us like the Bible says it should. And sometimes it doesn't seem to be working in our life the way we hear about it in other Christians. God, I don't see God that way. I don't have miracles that way. I don't have that experience in my life. And we sometimes think, is God gone? Is God not here? And then there's the book of Esther. But God's never mentioned. He's never seen, but entirely all the way through everything in the story, he's bringing about his covenant promises. And it's the most realistic book to show us that's exactly what he's doing in your life. When he seems distant and you just have to make decisions with the knowledge that you have at the time, best you can do. No signs, no miracles, no prophetic words. You're just doing your best. At the end of the day, at the end of the story, you find out that the whole time God's been bringing you in and using you in this bigger story and not just the bigger story, but the promises of God in your life. That's the book of Esther. And Jesus said that when you understand the book of Esther, you're really going to understand him. It's going to point to him and it's going to point to something about him. And so you don't need signs and you don't need miracles because the greatest miracle and the greatest sign you already have is the death and resurrection of Jesus on your behalf. That's what the book of Esther is ultimately about, as we'll see. Amen. Amen.